Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to the Explaining History podcast once again, and thanks very much for coming back to us here. Uh, it's been a little break for a, a few days, and I want to talk today about air raid precautions and air raid protection in Britain uh, during the Blitz. Now, uh, a couple of days ago, or maybe last week sometime, I recorded a podcast on the first day of the Blitz, and so this is a kind of like a little series uh, about uh, the social history of the Blitz, I, I guess you can call it. Uh, the book I tend to draw from uh, most is Juliet Gardner's The Blitz, uh, The British Under Attack, by and large, as a, a historian of the first half of the 20th century um, in Great Britain. Um, Juliet Gardner's pretty peerless. Um, she's an extraordinary writer, and I, I, I recommend you all um, absorb her work, uh, particularly her account of Britain in the 1930s. Anyway... As with most things to do with uh, Britain's entry into second, uh, the Second World War, the policies towards aerial bombardment and protection from bombing change very quickly and are sort of learned on the job. A lot of the presumptions that were made at the start of the war turn out to be um, when they are hit with the cold reality of an actual bombing campaign against Britain, turn out to be obsolete. And so um, the British improvised. And it's interesting if you read Whitehall documents um, at the time, um, particularly from uh, Sir John Anderson, the uh, progenitor of the Anderson Shelter, um, uh, Home Secretary and uh, person in charge of civil defence, for some uh, some of the time, and he was very concerned with what he viewed as the kind of like, the mass psychology of the of the the mob, and the propensity for people to panic to act irrationally. These were very popular ideas at the time, and the the, the idea that large groups of people together in one place were to be feared, and there was a kind of a political subtext to all of this. Uh, the the possibility of anarchy or dangerous revolution breaking out under the um, under the bombing. Hitler certainly hoped that that would happen. There was no reason to suggest it would do, but Hitler certainly hoped it, it would. And Anderson's uh, real job 
was the maintenance of law and order. Um, I did a podcast ages ago, about two or three years ago, on the subject of evacuation, and the uh, evacuees were extremely badly served in a, a number of ways, partly because um, the Home Office were not really thinking about the needs of children. They were thinking primarily about making sure that society didn't tear itself apart under the pressure of mass bombing. Very soon into the Blitz, within a week, Whitehall itself was being hit. On the 12th of September, uh, Whitehall uh, took a direct hit, uh, the Ministry of Transport was hit, and there were plans that were being put together to move the Cabinet and the Chief of Staff to the basement of the Post Office's Research Centre in Dollis Hill in north-west London, which would have been uh, quite a long way out of the uh, direct epicentre of the bombing. When Churchill and his wife Clementine uh, along with Jock Colville, went to have a look at the, uh, the bunker Colville wrote of the rooms. They are impressive but rather forbidding. I suppose if the present intensive bombing continues, we must get used to being troglodytes, i.e. creatures that live underground. I begin to understand what the early Christians must have felt about living in the catacombs. Churchill seldom visited um, the Dollis Hill uh, site. Um, he spent most of his time at Downing Street and went in the evenings um, to work underground in the Cabinet War Rooms. Uh, the Cabinet War Rooms are a stone's throw from Whitehall. Having been down there several years ago and spoken to the director of the, Cab- of the uh, Cabinet War Rooms Museum, uh, I learned that it was about the worst place possible to put it. The, uh, a direct hit would have destroyed the war rooms and the only reason why there was never a de- direct hit is that the Germans didn't know of its uh, existence. But the uh, intensity of bombing over Whitehall actually uh, is not inconceivable. The entire cabinet could well have been killed. The war rooms were defended as well with a garrison of troops in order to prevent the possibility of a a German commando raid, which was always thought might occur. Churchill, in his memoirs, said that he directed the war from the cabinet war rooms. But he had a variety of other subterranean sites. Um, The London Underground offices at Down Street, station in Mayfair, uh, which was on the Piccadilly line between Dover Street, which is now Green Park, and Hyde Park Corner Stations. Um, That was closed in 1932, and it was adapted into offices for the Railway Executive uh, Committee. So this was considered to be a safe underground location that not many people knew about, and was uh, slightly slightly removed from Whitehall, um, and was less likely to be hit. And as far as church was concerned, it, it had a large dining room, um, where the catering was meant to be uh, very, very good indeed. Despite Britain's rationing, Churchill was able to live very well during the Second World War and made sure that he never went out without his favoured um, glass of scotch. Part of Number 10 Downing Street, the Number 10 Annex, actually sat above the war rooms and the Churchills moved into a ground floor flat there. Um, Churchill also had his own, um, and Clementine Churchill had their own quarters in the war rooms. Um, The flat wasn't bomb-proof, but it was more likely to avoid a direct strike uh, than than number 10 itself. Um, The uh, flat was fitted with um, steel shutters that could be shut during the raid to prevent glass from being blown in. 
and he was here for the most part of the Churchills lived throughout the war years. One of the biggest um, questions of bureaucratic management uh, was the question of how to protect the public under a mass bombing campaign. Obviously, the uh, mandarins in Whitehall were aware of the impact of bombing in Spain, in China and in Abyssinia, but they were not able to really accurately calculate what would happen in Britain. The assumption was that for every tonne of high explosives dropped in a congested area, in a built-up area, there would be 50 casualties or thereabouts. The RAF had estimated uh, that 700 tonnes of bombs would be dropped daily, although for the first few days, in an effort to make sure that there had been a knockout blow to Britain, there would be as many as 950 tonnes. The Germans might decide to attack for a week-long uh, attrition attack on London and drop 3,500 tonnes of bombs in the first 24 hours. The, the maths, therefore, um, really stacked up in, in some quite terrifying ways. These are all assumptions, though. The intensity of air attack, as we know, was brought home through Pathé newsreels to uh, alarmed and anxious audiences in Britain throughout the 1930s, um, seeing um, Barcelona and places like Bilbao and Guernica uh, obviously being devastated by bombing during the Spanish Civil War. Advance warning was therefore essential. The country was divided up into 111 warning districts, which were based on telephone areas rather than local authority boundaries. Um, messages about enemy aircraft came from RAF Fighter Command, from the, the Dowding system that we've already talked about in uh, previous discussions on the, the Battle of Britain. Um, telephone uh, lines would cascade centers to war, messages to warning control centers, and then this would be transmitted in orders of priority to those on the warning list. So government officers would be told first, uh, military bases would be told, the police, civil defence headquarters, fire brigades and large industrial concerns. Each stage of this alert system was distinguished by a different colour code. A yellow alert meant there was preliminary caution, meaning that enemy planes were estimated to be about 22 minutes flying time. This, mis uh, this was confidential and the public would not have been aware of its receipt um, because those who were receiving it were instructed, um, and I quote, to take the necessary precautions in as unobtrusive way as possible. A red message was action warning. This relayed when planes were 12 minutes away. This was the signal for the police to activate air aid sirens in the district, which emitted, this sent out the low, um, uh, horrendously alarming uh, whine, which became louder and louder, uh, a wail. Um, the, this was unmistakable, an unmistakable alert that a raid was imminent and that they should seek shelter. Fighter Command finally sent the green message, all clear, which meant that raiders were passed. Um, and this, for this siren sounded a, a, two, a steady two-minute note. One of the great anxieties that the British government had was that mass bombing would disrupt uh, the workings of uh, the British economy particularly the British war economy. This was going to be a war of mass production and that uh, war was basically won or lost on the question of mass production. When the British, the Soviets and the Americans together combined began to outproduce the Axis powers 
several times over, it was a clear indication that the war was unwinnable. So the British needed to keep their workers in factories. And the use of uh, London underground stations to shelter in at night was really uh, discouraged by the British government because they thought that people wouldn't leave there. Um, they thought that the, that the 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 economy would start to fall apart as a result. It would be the equivalent of having a general strike during a war. So in July 1940, the balance shifts from safety first to production first, to making sure that no matter what, production continued. Um, the uh, unnecessary uh, amount of time that the government thought workers were spending in unproductive in air raid shelters, especially during daytime raids, uh, was alarming. Um, the Home Secretary, uh, Sir John Anderson, said that workers engaged in war production should be encouraged to continue at work after a public air raid warning until it is clear that an enemy attack is actually imminent in their neighbourhood. Bear in mind the difference between a yellow and a red warning was 10 minutes. Uh, this was um, made uh, possible by the recruitment of rooftop spotters who um, had n watching posts on top of all uh, major buildings across uh, the capital and in major cities across the country and they would uh, alert workers when planes were sufficiently close for them to need to take shelter. In July 1940, another code was introduced, another colour code anyway. This was the Purple Code, which was to towns and cities that were not targets, but would be on the radar's flight path, uh, and that were therefore told to extinguish all lights if it was night, and to follow all um, air raid protection, air raid precaution procedures, but also um, to continue working, if, it was a, um, if, if the recipient uh, of the bombing raid received a red message, any site along a, uh, that received a purple message along the route, its workers were permitted to continue working and not to necessarily uh, down tools um, as a result. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Looking at um, one piece of legislation that was passed in December 1937, the Airway Precautions Act, it's interesting that all local authorities were told that they had the responsibility for, and I quote, the protection of persons and property from injury and damage in the event of hostile attacks from the air. And they were required to submit um, air aid protection uh, schemes uh, for the approval of the government. But there were few guidelines. There were a couple of model schemes which were um, sent around uh, for councils to have a look at. But there, the problem was that nobody actually was sure um, what would be needed in the event of an air aid attack. And there was little direct um, direct, well, direction from central government. For example, it was unknown to local authorities up and down the country the impact that high explosive bombs would have. It was unknown how uh, far it was likely that poison gas would be used. It was unknown what, um, how concentrated the blast would be. Uh, and whether shrapnel would be the main concern or fire or collapsing buildings. And these are uh, important factors to consider when you're planning uh, how to distribute uh, your um, manpower and how you're planning to distribute things like fire brigades and ambulances. The government offered to subsidise the cost of air raid precautions uh, of up to, up to uh, 60 or 75%. Um, almost 85% in uh, boroughs that were poorer. And much of this money, of course, went on the building of air raid shelters. Uh, Anderson said that uh, probably the most difficult of all the questions with which local authorities are confronted is that of air raid shelters. Um, there was no understanding of how many there would have to be, how big they would have to be, and uh, the speed with which they had to be constructed um, was sometimes beyond the means of local authorities. The government assumed two things. One, that most towns and cities were, would have a, a large amount of accommodation by which uh, adaptation and strengthening and by, use of this, uh, and by the use of sandbags, sandbags um, could be made to give reasonable protection. And two, that all householders needed was advice from local officials and they would generally do what they could to increase the natural protection of their homes. Now, the, both these assumptions uh, turned out to be wildly inadequate, uh, that people did strengthen their own homes, people did put tape across their windows and dig Anderson shelters in their back gardens. We're talking about Anderson shelters in due course. But there was immense need for kind of municipal provision of uh, air raid shelters and uh, air raid um, precautions. And also the uh, assumption that local authorities would have enough spare property anyway, simply to reinforce and to surround with sandbags that could act as air raid uh, shelters, um, again, it turns out to be uh, inaccurate. 
Working class housing, such as um, housing that faced docks for dock workers or munitions uh, houses um, that housed munitions workers um, in heavy industrial towns, many of these houses were built in the mid 19th century very quickly, not particularly well, and were not particularly robust at the best of times let alone when faced with a bombing campaign. Obviously, a direct hit on a house is going to destroy it. However, the um, houses in working-class districts that didn't face work, uh, direct hits but experienced the, a shockwave or the blast um, were still very, very badly damaged because of the, the, kind of the weakness of the property to begin with. The government didn't like the idea of concentrating people in one place. Better to have them in their own homes protecting themselves than placing them all together in one place where they, there might be hundreds of frightened people um, who do all sorts of unpredictable and unwanted things. And also, a shelter, hundreds of people in one place, that shelter can also receive a direct hit. It's particularly unlucky. But I suspect, beneath all this, uh, the discussion about what the state can and cannot do for individuals was really somewhere under the surface. The, um, if you knew, you know, you need only to go back to 1914 to find a very different relationship between the state and the individual. Uh, a far more uh, removed, uh, classically liberal approach to um, individuals, not just rights, but responsibilities for their own self-care. Places where people tended to gather, cinema theatres, for example, or football matches or major sporting events, were briefly shut down at the start of the war, obviously to um, reopen fairly quickly afterwards. But again, there was this, uh, sense of this fear that one direct hit could wipe out an entire community particularly something like a, a football match, uh, which wasn't uh, attended as they are now by people from across the country, but people from one neighbourhood would go to their local team and support it and they'd all be there in one, one bomb and that's all over. There were public spaces that were earmarked for um, air raid shelters, um, it's essentially a rough kind of slip trench in many ways. But there was a reticence by local authorities to start digging up commons and heaths and parks um, and turning them into air shelters, as it looked rather similar to the trenches of the First World War. And this, of course, would send out a, a rather unfortunate message about the struggle ahead. The advice to uh, families in the quite famous booklet, The Protection of Your Home Against Air Raids, which was designed to be as non-alarmist as possible, but failed in that, really, was that one should create a refuge room at some point in the house, um, which would be a basement or a cellar. But if none of these were uh, available, any room with solid walls is safer than being out in the open. The, uh, in the event of an air raid, uh, it says, the head of the household should send all those under his, um, it was assumed it was a man, care, uh, with their respirators uh, to their gas masks to the refuge room and keep them there until he heard the raiders passed or all clear as it became known as. In 1938, just as the Munich crisis had come to an end, the Home Office uh, sent directives to local authorities in heavily populated areas to construct deep trench shelters 
for about a tenth of their residents. It was assumed at any one time 10% of people would be within the area and able to use them. Householders were encouraged to build their own air raid shelters in their gardens if they had a garden. So obviously this was a, a kind of a middle class luxury really for working class families in tenements. Uh, it wasn't going to be a possibility. Even though the government considered that the proper place to see out an air raid was at home, the reality is that just uh, a majority of people's homes weren't sufficient to, in order to, to do that, offering virtually no protection. And so uh, public places and public shelters become far more um, reliable or far more sought after uh, places for people to try to get to if they can. Obviously, they, even that's not a possibility for certain members of the population who are far away from these uh, shelters. By the time of the Munich crisis, sandbags had started to be piled up outside government buildings. But for the most part, there was almost no structural work being done. Um, when the crisis has passed, I mean, obviously it was thought that bombing might break out during the Munich crisis, that war might actually begin. Um, once the crisis has passed, um, work does begin ensuring at basements in municipal buildings and in homes. But it's all fairly unsystematic. There is no kind of central logic to, to what's happening. And also there's a shortage of materials and there's a lack of technical information about how thick to lay concrete, how to put in, how, how strong the steel joists have to be, that sort of thing. And it was at the end of 1938 that the Anderson Shelter was introduced. Um, the, and this, it was called the Standard Steel Shelter, and it was constructed of 800 weight of curved steel sheets. And it was a, a, essentially a curved steel uh, exterior carapace roof um, in the back garden with a dugout trench uh, dug, into, uh, dug underneath. Anyone earning less than £250 uh, could have their shelter for free, and it was hoped that 10 million people would be protected this way. Uh, the distribution begins in February 1939, and when, there had, when the uh, shelters had been distributed, it was uh, designed, it was intended that there would be uh, more that would be produced, but for direct sale. They were six feet high, six feet long, and four uh, feet six inches wide and had to be dug two feet into the ground and covered with earth or sand. Uh, they could accommodate four or to squash uh, six, and they were pretty easy to make. They had to be, uh, you had to be able to do it uh, kind of Ikea style without uh, any uh, actual expertise. There would be no protection from a direct hit. Um, they were not bomb-proof, but they were protection against fragments uh, debris and um, for, and, and blast, but they were you needed to have a garden, so they they favoured wealthier people. They were all subject to inspection and eventually would have a concrete floor pour, um, poured in. And the problem, of course, with Anderson shelters is that you couldn't spend the entire night in them because they didn't have a toilet and they were extremely uncomfortable. They've got coals, they were liable to be waterlogged as, as you dug down deeper towards the water table. And many people um, leave them um, and to kind of 
fester in the back garden once the Munich crisis has passed and in the phony war period uh, of the uh, Second World War up until 1940, some of these things are, are waterlogged by the time they actually need uh, to be used. Anderson shelters, of course, only are for people that have a garden. So local authorities in May 1939, when uh, it's clear that war is now a matter of uh, when, not if, began to build uh, public outdoor shelters, uh, blocks of flats where there's no suitable shelter uh, for the residents, and where there was almost nobody eligible for free shelters, um, the landlord could actually be compelled to build one if he was petitioned by more than 50% of the tenants and was able to recoup the cost by raising rents. Despite all this, by September 1939, there was a shortfall of about a million uh, Anderson shelters that um, meant that even in um, the most dangerous areas, uh, the people had, there were people with no shelters, and nothing was offered for sale until uh, October 1939. Um, and there was a, a discrepancy between the lowest price, um, £6.14, and £14.18, and £10 um, that meant that it was possible to gain, gain them on kind of credit and higher purchase uh, arrangements. There was limited take-up in these paid-for Anderson shelters, and by April 1940, fewer than 10,000 had been bought, but the basement strengthening programme had barely begun. So that gives you an overview of Britain's rather piecemeal and ad hoc approach to air raid defence um, on the eve of the war. And it gives you a clue about British preparations um, on the home front in general. And things change during the, um, the years 1940 and 41, as we'll see later on. Anyway, I hope you found that useful. I'll catch you on the next podcast. Do check out our Patreon page and give us a good review on iTunes if you can. Uh, thanks very much for listening. All the best. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.